This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. <coughs> okay, well I'm gonna just I'm gonna just jump right in this evening to talk about crying. Uh, I've entitled this lecture, What Do We Do With Our Tears? The Theology of Crying. And as, as often said at at least Southboro Libri Lectures, uh, I entitled this lecture long before I wrote a single word of it or read anything on it. So hopefully, though, the material still makes sense with this, uh, with this title. But I, I just want to begin with uh, a very basic observation. Uh, to cry... Uh, to experience and is to experience and undergo something that is distinctly human. When you cry or when you see someone else crying, what we see is a human being doing something that only humans do. So there's some debate on whether or not a certain type of East Asian elephant, as well as crocodiles when they eat, cry. It seems as though the consensus view of researchers uh, at least that I could come across, um, including the National Geographic, uh, is that only humans cry. Humans are creatures that cry. Now, in a very strict sense, all creatures have tears, but not all creatures cry them in the same way. So scientists, researchers distinguish between three sorts of tears, <coughs> uh, which a body can produce. The first are called I believe basal or basal tears. I'm not sure of the pronunciation. And these are, did someone say yes? Basil? 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 Oh, okay. It was, I thought maybe it was someone who had, yeah, yeah, no. I was going to say someone who might know, but, um, uh, it's just we're not a scientific family. That's all, um, but the first are called, uh, basal tears, and these are omnipresent. Uh, they're always there. They act as a lubricant for our eyes. <clears throat> the second type of tear is an irritant or reflex tear, which are produced when something foreign comes into our eye and <clears throat> the eye needs to flush the foreign subject out. So when you get a speck in your eye, when you're uh, using a sledgehammer on uh, stone walls in the sunken garden and you get something in your eye, when you're cutting onions for a Libri meal uh, and you start to tear up, uh, the, these are irritant or reflex tears. And, and the final tiers, the ones that I mostly will be speaking, really I'll be speaking about tonight, are called psychogenic. And these are produced as an expression of emotions. And these are the tiers that only humans create and release. So our corneas are a far from perfect surface. They're wrinkled, they're uneven, and our basal or basal tiers smooth out the regularities of that surface. It actually makes vision as we know it possible. Without these tears, this everyday omnipresent teary layer, we would see a world of weird diffraction and absences. 
And actually, ultimately, we'd be unable to move our eyes and our eye sockets the way that we do. And without irritant or reflex tears, we would probably lose our eyes altogether to some infection that we would get after some foreign objects finds its way into our eyes. This raises the question, without this third category of tears, psychogenic tears, those tears that are shed in response to emotion and shed only by humans, what would we lose if we remained tearless, if we never had these sorts of tears? And so easily, by far, the most interesting thing I discovered while doing the research for this lecture is that ancient Byzantine physicians uh, wrote that you could recognize a werewolf by its tearlessness. So if you don't cry, Byzantine physicians think you're most likely a werewolf. I think that's the most interesting anecdote I found. And as like humorous or as bizarre as as it might sound, it speaks to something to what we've said before, this, this consensus view that only humans cry. Uh, and so to perpetually be tearless diminishes something about us uh, that makes us human. And this, <clears throat> it's interesting, this threefold classification of tears goes all the way down, so to say. When studied at a compositional or molecular level, uh, each of these different types of tears are distinguishable. They have different compositions. And emotional tears have a specifically therapeutic makeup. They contain higher concentrations of proteins, of manganese, manganese, I forget how you say that, prolactin, and then this is the hard one that I uh, was going to, I didn't expect to trip up over manganese, manganese, but then here's this one, Uh, adrenocorticotropic. Uh, which is uh, an indicator of stress. Uh, That is also exclusively in these tears. And they also have uh, enkephalin, which is an endorphin and a natural painkiller. So Adele Calhoun, who is a pastor and a spiritual director and an author, in her book Invitations from God, which includes a chapter on crying, um, she writes this, How remarkable that God has hardwired us to weep when we come to the end of our resources. Tears wash away the buildup of toxic chemicals that accrue under stress. Now, an artist named Rose Lynn Fisher, we've already been looking at some of her work, in a collection of photographs called The Topography of Tears, speaks about these compositional differences between the three types of tears as an instance of the poetry of life poetry of life. And so what she's done, so we've already been looking at uh, some of her images, and so what she did was she collected tears, she dried them on a glass slide, and captured them in a hundredfold magnification through a high-resolution optical microscope. And what emerges in this topography of tears, as she calls it, is an aerial tour of the landscape of human emotion and its most striking eruptions. Joy, grief, sadness, remorse, and hope. And so this first picture is actually a picture of tears of grief uh, that she has. This The second one that we've already been looking at um, 
I, I can't read my own handwriting here. I think these are tears of change. I have a few more. We'll, we'll see a few more throughout the night. These are tears of possibility. These are tears of remorse. I think, yeah, we'll stop at tears of remorse for a moment. But I, I like how she articulates the difference in this chemical makeup uh, and in our tears that goes all the way down. She call, calling it the poetry of life, part of the poetry of life. Because I find that often tears, my own and those that are cried, uh, <clears throat> shed in my company, are somewhat like somewhat like poetry. I know something significant is being communicated, but I'm just not exactly sure always what it is. I need some help to make sense of what's going on with these tears. Now, Tom Lutz is an author of a really fascinating large book called Crying, A Natural and Cultural History of Tears. Uh, In in this work of his, he says he has some apt words on this, this, our need for help to understand our own tears. He says, some tears are indisputably readable. A child's tears at a scraped knee, a parent weeping at the death of a child. These do not require any ingenious or tortured acts of interpretation. Yet weeping often occurs at precisely those times when we are least able to fully verbalize complex, overwhelming emotions. When we are least able to fully articulate our manifold, mingled feelings. We recognize in crying a surplus of feeling overthinking and an overwhelming of our powers of articulation by the gestural language of tears. And gestural means meaning just a gesture, um, <clears throat> moving part of our body <clears throat> that's intended to emphasize something. So my, my hope, my attempt, my offering tonight is to help us make sense of these psychogenic tears. I won't always be calling them psychogenic. Um, And if we're going to go anywhere in making sense of these tears, we've seen uh, they have some some things they're connected to that could maybe offer us a way in. They're, They're cried just by humans, so we need to have some sense of what a human is. And they're uh, cried uh, as an expression of emotion. So we need to have some idea of what emotions are. So this is actually going to be the beginning of our layout tonight. This is a picture of onion tears, uh, by the way. I think it's just, uh, this one I really quite like. Onion tears, and there's a couple more that I really like. Uh, but so just an idea of where we're going. Um, <clears throat> sort of a long takeoff uh, <clears throat> to get to understanding tears. I'm going to start with just one way of making sense of what makes humans human, then looking at what are our emotions. These are the two things connected to these type of tears. And then in closing, I want to look at three big cries uh, that we find in Scripture. And I just want to note up front that uh, uh, I'm not a full-on werewolf, but I don't... Um, I don't cry a ton. I don't cry as much as I would like to. And... I have friends who cry often who wish they cried less uh, than they did. Um, and I'm a bit of a sympathetic crier also, especially when um, men my age or older in particular start to cry. I'm usually going to start to cry. I don't, 
you can make sense of that however you want. I haven't totally made sense of it. Um, and I just want to note that while I believe all tears are, are real, I should just be acknowledged not all tears are genuine. I won't be talking about tears like crocodile tears that are shed in manipulation or those that are conjured up by actors. I'm just going to kind of talk about sincere psychogenetic tears tonight. Um, but so I'm going to start, jump in with what are humans? And these are, uh, uh, these are a picture of fishers. These are overwhelmed tears. Um, the, the, the stuff at the top makes me think of Arrival. Uh, the, the alien, if anyone's seen the movie Arrival? Anyway. So we're going to talk about being human. <clears throat> and in particular, humans as creatures that love. Or humans as lovers. So in the book of Proverbs, we're told that it's vital in growing in wisdom that we guard our heart. For everything we do flows from our heart. Life flows from the heart, and so we need to be careful in how we curate what our heart clings, what our hearts cling to. The language of love, the language of heart in our culture has been co-opted by sentimental greeting cards, uh, and the nature of love has been dwindled down to just romantic feelings or even just a way of speaking about sex. But philosopher James K.A. Smith, in his, uh, his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, points out <clears throat> these connotations or um, sort of watering down are foreign to the biblical idea of the heart and to the nature of love. Now, Smith is a philosopher by day, and he writes way too many books. He speaks too much. He loves words. He likes ideas. So uh, I just need to say that. But he's convinced in the West so much of our assumptions about what it means to be human is that so much of life flows from our mind, from our thinking. Being able to use our rationality is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, but if this is what we understand to be most significant about us, what makes humans human, we end up with something of a top-heavy, diminished, overly cognitive approach to thinking about humans that's not really true to life in many cases. And it ultimately, I don't think, would do justice to our tears, which would be seen as just sort of sub-rational. I think sometimes this is, um, or, or a weakness, sometimes... We see this when people, as they start to cry, immediately start apologizing as though they're failing at something. But I think humans are creatures that are drawn more by their loves and their desires than driven by clear, rational thinking. And I like clear, rational thinking. Uh, I'm not anti that. But I think at our core, humans are lovers. We're drawn by our affections and our desires. What we care about things that matter to us. And again, it's not that we don't think or that thinking isn't important. And sometimes, even though Smith is a philosopher by day, uh, sometimes you get the impression that he, he, well, he overstates his case, I think, a little bit. But we're just not the sort of creatures who think our way through the world. Uh, social scientist Jonathan Haidt, in his very well-received, very well-known book from maybe about a decade ago called The Righteous Mind. Are people familiar with Jonathan Haidt at all? Maybe. Well, at least Dick is. Um, But he has this image. 
He says we often conceive of our minds, uh, our rationality as this like truth-seeking missile. Uh, it's like a heat-seeking missile looking for truth. Um, he said, but in fact, and there's just pages and pages and pages of really interesting, sometimes very bizarre uh, research. He says, in fact, our, our rationality is often functions more like a press secretary. It's employed to justify the sort of irrational desires we've already decided to follow. And much of Smith's insights are really downstream, um, and he says this as much himself, from a 4th century North African bishop, a guy named uh, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, North Africa, who believed that the key to understanding humans, uh, why we do what we do, especially when we do things that we know we shouldn't do uh, or say we won't do, and why we react the way that we do. For, For Augustine, the key is loves. We are creatures that are driven by our loves. He writes, when we ask whether somebody is a good person, we're not asking what he believes or what he hopes for. We're asking what he loves. So this gets complicated, though, in in life, in large part, uh, well, in many different ways. But Augustine says the reason why is because our loves, the things we care about, the things that we think matter, that drive us, that we attach our hearts to, are disordered. They are out of order. Uh, Disordered loves lead us to all sorts of heartache, discontent, and trouble. Um, It's not only that we love things we know uh, that we shouldn't love. uh, It's just that we have a tendency also uh, to love the less important things of life more than we should. So love is central to a human, and Augustine actually didn't make this up himself. He gets this from Jesus, uh, who brings together two parts, two famous lines from the Old Testament. His great commandment, to love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the key that opens the door to the good life, having our loves ordered, God, neighbor, and then self. Uh and, and, and that's the order. And Abraham, earlier this week at our table, quoted Martin Luther, who sort of says a similar thing about love God. Do you remember what you said? No? Maybe not? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself and do whatever you want. And do what you want. Yeah, the rest can sort itself out. Um, and so I just want to flesh this out a little bit with a couple quick examples. So I have a job. I'm working. Uh, right now, and sometimes I really like my job. Um, I don't always. I usually like my job when people tell me I'm doing it quite well. Uh, and that's a good thing to experience. But if I ultimately love my job more than I love my kids uh, or my wife, it's going to cause all sorts of problems for me, but also for them. Long-term trouble will definitely ensue. And so let's say you have a business and you want to be successful, which is a good thing. But if you love the idea and the prospect of being rich more than you love justice, you'll most likely find all sorts of reasons, very rational explanations on why you should take advantage of your employees if it maximizes profit. So those are some examples of how loves can be disordered. So Pastor Tim Keller, it wouldn't be a Labrie lecture at Southboro without a Tim Keller quote. 
he reflects on disordered loves and he says the following. If you love your children more than you love God, you will essentially rest your need for significance and security in them. You will need too much from them for them to succeed, to be happy and to love you back. That will either drive them away or crush them under the weight of your expectations because they will be the ultimate source of your happiness, and no human being can measure up to that. The same is true for a spouse, for a career, for a house, for a car, for any sort of identity we want. And I know it sounds very pious, it it can sound very Sunday schoolish, but as long as God's love remains an abstraction for us in some area of our life, we look towards something else to do for us what only God can do. And Augustine's concern is that when we do this, when we get our loves out of order, whatever it is that we're loving above God will inevitably harm it, we will inevitably harm ourselves, and we will inevitably harm the world around us. So this is why he thinks properly ordered loves are so important. Otherwise, we end up asking the things that we love to carry more weight than they're able to bear, and we ultimately will crush them. So again, God, just to be clear, God is not asking us to not love things, to only love him and just sort of forget everything else as though it doesn't, doesn't matter. I mean, God clearly loves this world that he has made. Um, but we must be careful in how we love. And that's what the language of, of disordered and ordered loves is getting at. And the process of reordering loves is, is quite difficult. It is a whole life process. Our loves are mingled, they're mixed, and the nature of their disorderedness isn't actually always very clear to us. Uh, and we rarely love things in simple, singular, uncomplicated ways. And the ways that I have found, I, I can also, I can tell you all day long things that I think that I love, but in reality, I've placed my loves somewhere else. And so a colleague of ours at the Dutch Libri uh, had a helpful way of thinking about this, actually figuring out what you love, sort of like a love audit uh, of sorts. And so he had a few questions that I do ask myself from time to time. Um, ask yourself the simple question of, what do I give my time to? What what do I give my time to? I've been challenged recently also um, <clears throat> when I say, oh, I don't have time for something, some important thing, to rephrase that and just say, oh, it's just not a priority for me to do, whether it's exercise or pray or spend time with my kids. When I say, oh, I don't have time, I don't have time. But so, yeah, the first question, what do we uh, give our time to? What do we give our sustained attention to? What do we think about as we fall asleep at night? And what's the first thing in our minds when we wake up in the morning? That thought that's sort of waiting there for you. What am I willing to spend money I maybe don't actually have on? What am I willing to go in debt for? Uh, What makes my emotions rise? And what do I get defensive over? What do I get upset and defensive over? These things show us what we actually love. So creatures, remember, this is about tears, and we're going to get there. But humans, the creatures that cry, are firstly creatures that love. And there's certainly more to say about the uniqueness of humans, the uh, distinction of humans from other sorts of creatures. 
But I think this gives us a helpful way in, or at least a foot in the door. Uh, and as we move into the next thing we're going to talk about, emotions. So here are some tears after a goodbye. These are... Um, just a sparser image. Uh, a lot more space and kind of look like antennas to me in some way. But we're going to talk about emotions. <clears throat> and there's so much to say about emotions, the things that give rise often to our tears, the things that our tears can articulate. Um, and I, the way that I'm going to speak about emotions, I think actually overlaps with really how I've come to understand uh, some significant parts of our tears. And I just want to say I'm aware that emotions are just a big, complicated reality, and there's plenty of ways to understand them on the market that I'm just not going to talk about or that I don't understand, and that there's ways that our emotions are complex, um, like clinical depression, anxiety disorders, all other sorts of realities that can complicate anything that I'm about to say that sounds neat and tidy. Um, and I just want to say up front, uh, I got a lot of, uh, of, of what I'm going to say in this next section from a really wonderful resource, so wonderful that I centered it, even put it over the tears after the goodbye, <laughs> a book called Untangling Emotions by J. Alistair Groves and Winston T. Smith. It's a really readable, helpful, thoughtful, nuanced book. That, um, yeah, if you uh, feel though your emotions are hard to make sense of, um, because they are, um, this is a helpful, a helpful, a helpful resource. But I'm going to offer a description, not a definition, of emotions. And we'll kind of walk through this. And again, this is building towards, uh, crying. And so this is, this is what I get, uh, not, not in this sort of condensed soundbite way from them, but these are some of the things they're talking about. Our emotions, uh, are intuitive and communicative whole person responses to those things that we love. They're also working with a very similar idea of humans as creatures that love. And what I'm after here is that our emotions deserve our attention. They are intuitive. They know something. They carry information. They're communicative. Uh, they, they are, are connecting us. They're, they're telling us something that we might not always be aware of. Sometimes emotions are presented as irrational, and of course they can drive us to act in deeply irrational manners. They, they know something. And they know something about us that we might not cognitively always be aware of. And we experience our emotions throughout our whole person. They're not just in our head or just in our body. We experience them in both places, which is partly why our body produces tears. And they're always in relation to the things that we value, the things that we are convinced matter. They connect us to our loves so our emotions know, they communicate, and they connect. Um, so I'm just going to say a few words about each part. So the intuitive part. We rarely, I think really, if ever, choose our emotions. More times than not, our emotions happen to us. And they happen almost immediately. Often before we're able to think through a particular situation rationally to observe it so to say um, 
consider whether or not we might have all the facts. Um, or sorry, I skipped down here. Um, our emotions happen to us, and have, and they happen before we're able to think through it, uh, whether it's good or bad. Our emotions are usually already there. They're sort of waiting for us to catch up. We experience them first. And one of the reasons why uh, <clears throat> is because they know something. They know something that's going on. They know what we value. They know what we love. Something that's not always, um, well, it's not always clear to us. And so an example might be helpful here. Consider um, what would happen if you find out that a colleague of yours is getting a promotion that comes with a corner office and maybe a company car, if that's still a thing, or more pay or something like that. But they are getting a promotion. You really wanted this promotion. Now, before you think through the situation kind of rationally, considering whether or not uh, they might, in fact, have deserved it, you probably quickly find yourself mad, you're angry, you're jealous. Your emotions are already there the minute you hear about it. They respond instantly and instinctively Because they know something about the situation that we might not allow ourselves sort of cognitively or consciously think. They know that you think you're a better employee than the person who actually got that. And whether or not that is the case that you deserved uh, the raise, that's a totally different story that we could always talk about uh, in the question and answer time. But that our emotions are intuitive and that they happen to us is actually a wonderful way that God has designed us uh, if our loves are, in fact, properly ordered. Generally, God, neighbor, and self. God has designed us to be able to respond quickly to this world, especially when something we love, something we believe matters, that we've placed value in, something that we care for, has been threatened or is hurt. If you get a call in the middle of the night that a friend of yours was in a terrible accident, you're going to be frightened, you're going to be scared, you're going to be anxious and heartbroken. And as unpleasant as those emotions are, they communicate to you the value of your friendship, the nature of your love, and they connect you to your friend. They compel you to get up, to get dressed, and rush to the ER or maybe call other friends. And in the face of tragedy and evil, as difficult as these negative emotions are, they're the right things to feel, the proper things to feel, um, because they know something that's true about reality. They know something about the things you've invested your love in. And they get you up and they get you active. So they're intuitive, they're communicative, they, they know something, they communicate something to us. They also just happen in our whole body. We need a mind and a body uh, for uh, emotions to work, to have them. So one of the ways our body deals with emotions is through tears, which I promise we're going to get to. Uh, And so it's worth just reminding ourselves of Adele Calhoun's words in Invitations from God. It's remarkable that God has hardwired us to weep when we come to the end of our resources. Tears wash away the buildup of toxic chemicals that have accrued under stress. So I've already said a lot about loves, but I do want to say how they are, our emotions are responses to the things that we love. The whole person 
response arises because of this relationship we have to the things we care about, this very central part of who we are. If we don't love something, our emotions don't kick in. If we don't think it matters, our emotions aren't there. And of course, they're going to kick in differently for different people because we love differently. Um, and so I, I also just want to throw out there, this is just maybe for tangential, but maybe helpful. Uh, I, I just don't think it's possible to change, to just change our emotions as much as we would like to just change our emotions. Anyone who has attempted to change their emotions can probably attest that it's, if it's a futile exercise. But if our emotions, if there's any truth to what really Groves and Smith are saying, if their responses to our loves, the things that we care about, we do have the ability to slowly, attentively, and deliberately, by the grace of God and the help of friends, do the hard work of reordering our loves, which will lead to a different emotional response. We work on our loves, which will require will and attention, but our emotions can catch up to that, I think, after time. Uh, we can talk more about that a little bit later. I have plenty of examples <laughs> from my own life of wishing I could just change my emotions and not being able to. But I've talked for a while about the things connected to humans, the creatures that cry, to kind of help us get into this idea of crying, uh, or this reality of crying. It's not just an idea. I presented humans as not just thinking, rational creatures, but as ones driven and compelled by the things that they value, the things that we love, the things that we really, really care about. And our emotions can be understood as this intuitive thing, this communicative, whole-person response to the things that we love. And so we're going to move to tears now. And these are tears that were cried for what could not be fixed. It's amazing to me how much that kind of looks like a a heart uh, in the middle there, though it has like stringy legs and stringy uh, stringy arms. Um, and um, so, thinking of emotions as knowing something, as communicating something, and as responses to the things that we love, I think our tears are very, very similar. Our tears have deep meaning. Our tears know something. Our tears communicate something both to us and to others when they arrive, when they come out of us in relation to the things we care deeply about. The things that we as humans, again, the only creatures that cry this way, the places we've invested our loves in. A couple weeks ago, someone was talking with my wife and was crying quite a bit. And she summed this up so beautifully. She said, I, I can't, I cry because I care. I care about these things that hurt. And so often the things that we love in our life or in the lives of those around us, they suffer. They're threatened or they hurt. Just a few that came to me and you can think of endless, I'm sure you, you have your own. When a diagnosis is terminal, when a relationship ends, When the job goes to someone else. Uh, When a young father has to go fight in a war he doesn't actually believe in. When someone's innocence is taken from them against their will. 
when a job takes a friend across the country, puts them in a different time zone, when those we know are wrongly imprisoned. There's so many things that we could talk about, that, that we could share. And while I want to be hesitant to sort of give a one-size sort of fits-all explanation, some master theory to what our tears know and to what our tears communicate, uh, but I will offer this. Our tears know and our tears communicate to us and to those around us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. This is a deeply held Christian conviction about the world we find ourselves in. So whether one is crying from deep pain, deep confusion, or maybe even the tears of joy that come in response to beauty or goodness, the sort of tears that I think happen much less regularly, their tears both, I think, are tears that attest to the deeply held Christian belief That on the whole, things are not the way they're supposed to be. There's moments when we get a taste of it, when we get a smell of it, when we get an experience of it. But on the whole, that is not what we know. And uh, that they carry a deep desire that things should be, and perhaps even could be otherwise, than how they are. And this is not simply wish fulfillment. This is not a naive sentimentality or some residual evolutionary tool designed for our survival. Tom Lutz, in his massive book on the history of crying, writes this. Just as as the infant's first tears signal its desire for nourishment or comfort, tears usually signal a desire, a wish, or a plea. People suffering some certain kinds of chemical depression do not cry precisely because they have, by their own report, given up on all hope of their desires being answered. Without desire, there are no tears. A severely neglected infant, like the depressed person, will stop crying altogether. It is the infant who believes it will be picked up that wails, energized by its fear, that it will be left alone. So our tears are often vulnerable, but they're this primal protest that things are not right, but they could be and they might be different. Even the moments, again, of joyful tears that come for just brief moments when our in our little corner of the world, everything feels right. On the whole, things are not the way they are supposed to be. And we don't have to pretend that they are. Our tears, like the crying infant who believes it will eventually be picked up, that things could someday be different. Our tears believe this. They express this. They hope this. The desire uh, is not something we need to suppress, we need to ignore, we need to be ashamed of or avoid. It needs to find expression in the inarticulate yet universal language of tears. There's no need to be a werewolf. We are humans. And our tears are a gift from a God who does not ask us to hold our tears back, even when our church cultures tend to want us to, or at least make them feel awkward. 
So in this book, With Those Who Weep, A Theology of Tears, that's written by S.A. Morrison, the foreword to this book is really great. The book itself is okay. Um, <laughs> the foreword is by author and psychologist J.K. Ramsey, and she, she writes the following thing. I have the book, too, if you want to look at it. She says this, we pass, our, we pass our platitudes like Kleenex, anxious to make each other's tears go away. We often even use scripture to silence ourselves and each other. Even though the candor of the Psalms show us our crying and confusion and contempt are central parts of prayer. Romans 8.28 isn't a pill to pop like aspirin to make the headache of ours pass in 30 minutes or less. Like the teeth of kids who have eaten too much sugar, a faith of spiritual bypassing rots our souls. It's the whole forward is just full of great lines like that. So I want to look now in closing at three big cries in scriptures, uh, in the scriptures. I'm going to start with just a couple from Psalm, Psalm 6 and Psalm 56. But uh, one search that I found uh, pulled up 894 references to crying or tears in scripture. And again, Adele Calhoun in her chapter on crying and invitations from God summarizes some of the instances of crying that you can find in the Bible. Uh, people cry in slavery, defeat, despair, and exile. People weep through loss, betrayal, death, and sin. They shed tears in anger, doubt, and confusion over the ways of God. Fathers and mothers weep, children weep, infertile women and virgins weep, patriarchs, priests, and prophets weep. Cities weep, kings weep, armies weep, the disciples weep, Mary weeps, the elders in Ephesus weep, Paul weeps, John weeps, some weeps, for, some weep for themselves while others weep for the profound suffering of others. And as we know, too, Jesus weeps. Um, actually, the paragraph keeps going. I just cut it because uh, it just kept going. But the three tears I'm going to look at are the psalmist's tears, Jesus's tears, and then our tears. Um, and so I just want to draw our attention to these two psalms. There's so many references in, to tears in the psalms, but I'm just going to look uh, at, at these two actually quite briefly uh, and just share them. So this is in Psalm 6. Uh, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. These are all, sorry, these tears over here too, if you couldn't see down here. This is an image of tears of compassion um, that sort of remind me of uh, uh, the leaves to cedar, cedar trees a little bit. Uh, and the final, and then this Psalm 56. Um, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And the, the first psalm, again, is just one of many, but shows there are abundance of tears cried by the people of God. This is, this is a psalm of David. And the second one comes with this really fascinating, uh, fascinating image of, of God collecting our tears as though they were deeply precious things to him that aren't just going to dry on our face or on our shirt or on the ground, but that he is going to keep track of, even if we are unable to. And they're a special thing that he wants to keep in a bottle. 
Our tears matter deeply to God in this. And then, of course, there's much more to say. I want to move to Jesus' tears. And we know from the Gospel of John, he wept at at Lazarus' tomb. We know from the Synoptic Gospels, he he weeps over Jerusalem. And in Hebrews, it talks about he he cried often. Um, But I, I want to particularly look at the instance of when he cried over Jerusalem. Uh, uh, in his triumphal entry. And I'm, I'm gonna actually leave sort of the explanation or the exposition of these scriptures, uh, to a couple other people. I have some longer quotes, but I'll read them first. So Matthew 23, 37. These are the words of Jesus as he's looking out over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And in Luke's account of this, it says he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over the city. So I want to first start with, um, there's a, uh, a couple books. This one is uh, that are collections of liturgies uh, that are written by a man named Doug McKelvey, and they have some really lovely artwork in them too. But uh, a liturgy to, uh, you could perhaps use, a way to pray through some of your tears, uh, is a liturgy that comes in volume one, and it's called, For Those Who Weep Without Knowing Why. Um, and so this is a prayer. I'm just going to read. I'm going to pick it up partway through. It's many, many pages. Um, but it, it captures poetically, I think, some of what I've been trying to say. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory, but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept so often, and we will weep again. And yet, there's somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness, like a tiny flame, when we are told Jesus also wept. You wept, so moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O Lord, heaved with grief, drinking the anguish like water and sweating out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? It keeps going on. It's quite a, quite a um, beautiful prayer. But Tish Harrison Warren also, in her book, Prayer in the Night, uh, which I know a number of you have, have read, she says this about Jesus' tears here that flows out of this idea of Jesus' tears sanctifying human tears, potentially. She says, um, Here he weeps not in rage at death, as he did at Lazarus' tomb, but in the sorrows of unrequited love. It's a deeply maternal image. Jesus longs to gather up children, wrap them up in the safety and intimacy of his embrace. But they refuse. Busy and distracted, the bustling city turns away. Any mother who has had to sit and watch her child destroy himself, watch their beloved walk into destruction, abuse, or addiction, Watch as the one she sang over 
disappear into someone she can no longer recognize. These sorts of mothers know something about how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And in, uh, actually, interestingly enough, another ordained um, Anglican woman, uh, Fleming Rutledge, or uh, Tish Harrison Warren is one, Fleming Rutledge, who uh, is, I think, one of the best preachers in North America, uh, in a sermon called The Tears of Palm Sunday, speaking about this, <clears throat> says the following, and it's a longer read. Jesus does not weep for himself. He weeps for the city. He weeps for those who would soon shout, crucify him. In other words, he weeps for us. Did anyone ever weep for you? Did your mother shed tears because you did something that disappointed her? Did your father weep for you because you got into trouble? Or did a daughter weep because her father abused her? Did a son weep because his father blamed him for something he never did? Did you weep for a friend lost on a battlefield or in a car crash? Did you weep for a child lost in a drug culture or for a grandchild kicked out of school? Did you weep for someone committing a hideous injustice? Do we weep? All of the tears that have been cried, every tear that has ever been shed by anyone anywhere, are rolled up into these tears of Jesus. Jesus weeps for us. The Son of God weeps for you. Recently, I saw a 60 Minutes program about the unspeakable massacres that have been going on in Algeria. Christian Amapur interviewed a man who had watched the military come in and murder his whole family, his wife and children. He showed Miss Amapur the locations, the bloodstains, the place where he hid and watched, unable to do anything to save them. He described all this in a dispassionate tone, as though he were a journalist or a tour guide so that we, the television audience, wondered why he did not seem to be feeling anything. After he finished his description, the camera left him and went on to show other things. A few minutes later, however, it returned to reveal him sitting at a little table with his head bowed. Moving in, the camera revealed him to be silently weeping. The tears fell down his face and dropped onto the table. No words were necessary. In those silent tears, there was a whole world of inconsolable sorrow. Tears are eloquent. Tears speak. Judges look for tears when they are looking for a reason to give a lighter sentence. Jesus' tears encompass the entire human tragedy. He weeps for the Algerian man and his family, but he also weeps for the killer, killers of this man's family. In the tears of the one man Jesus, God's complete solidarity with human sin, we see, but also with human pain. She goes on uh, to comment about that great hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. She said, it's even more amazing that Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did the Sovereign cry. Um, The final tears from scripture that I want to talk about are ours. One of uh, the most awkward parts, culturally awkward at least, um, 
of crying is is crying with others, especially when they don't know what to do. Uh, through my almost decade here at Libri, I've had a lot of people cry with me, and they often, you know, are profusely apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm crying. And I know the title of this lecture was "What do we do with our tears?" Uh, one thing is, don't apologize uh, for them. Don't apologize for them. That is an awkward thing. But a painful thing is to cry our tears alone. To have no one to cry with. Uh, and no one who can understand or receive our tears. What they're saying, what they're connected to, what hurts of ours. And so as almost a bit of a... Um, what revival pre- is it an altar call at the end if uh, that like a revival sermon would have if you have never cried with anyone or have no hopes of ever crying for anyone consider Jesus as someone who not only will forgive our sins and recreate the world and make things right he's someone who we can cry with so at the end of revelation the end of scriptures we see this amazing, amazing uh, line that John actually picks up from the prophet Isaiah. So in John, it says about about Jesus, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And you can see how it's not quoting, but echoing Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And so, in sort of speaking about this particular verse in Revelation, I'm going to give the closing words uh, again to Tish Harrison Warren, uh, speaking about this. Um, She says this, The end of the Bible turns to the end of time. And John describes a breathtaking moment when God will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. When we finally see God face to face, we will be made whole, and there will be no more death or crying or pain. All things will be set right. But wait, not until we have one last long cry. Redemption itself does not skip over the darkness but demands that every last tear run. Christians believe that a place of eternal joy not only exists, but is more real than the diminished place of sorrow and pain we all now know. The image of God wiping away our tears could, of course, be a metaphor, a statement that all things will at last be well. But what if it's not strictly poetic language? What if... In the face of our Maker, we get one last chance to honor all the losses this life has brought us. What if we can stand before God someday and hear our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety, with all the twists and turns and meanings we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story includes all the darkness of suffering, all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D, death. And we get to weep one last time with God himself. What if before we begin to live in a world where all things are made new, 
We weep with the one who alone is able to permanently wipe away our tears. That is where I'm going to stop. Um, And yeah, thank you for listening and open for response, for questions. Um, You're also free to get another cookie or um, go home or to bed. Um, But yeah, we could be happy to talk. Yeah, did you already have something? Yeah, I'm just curious. The um, slide looks so fascinating. Are they really tears as she's titled them, or um, are they just she she gave them those titles? Like, no, she got like yeah, she went for you know I don't know exactly what tears of redemption what the uh, which is this final slide which looks kind of what's yeah anyway um, I don't know exactly what the circumstances that led to that, but yeah, all the other ones are people crying at, at, at some sort of loss or onions um, or whatever the other ones were that are all escaping my mind at the moment. Um, but yeah, they're all, sorry, they're all connected. That's, that's, it's fascinating. Um, so um, I know this isn't really what your talk was about, but... You know, no, no, let's go there. Yep. So is it a different chemical makeup for different different reasons for the tears? For, at least between, there's different chemical. I I didn't get into all of the difference, uh, but yeah, usually the psychogenic, psychogenic uh, is, is, is quite different than the basil or the irritant. Um, so, yeah, so our tears have that compositional difference to them, but... She was not necessarily making a point of, as she said, as an artist, not as a scientist. Um, again, her language was ex- expressing the poetry of life uh, and looking at sort of just the differences. But she wasn't necessarily drawing any, this is what all tears of redemption look like. This is what all tears of change look like. This is what all onion tears look like. But she was trying to show that they're even at sort of a compositional level, there's differences. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I was kind of thinking, that the psychogenic tears are different, maybe a different chemical makeup depending upon what, the, what they're over, mm-hmm. what kind of tears they are, but um, I, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like, uh, I like these a lot, these mm-hmm. tears of compassion. Do you know if they were all from the same person? No, they're from different people. Um, and then, yeah, I like these overwhelmed tears. And then, um, yeah, these onion tears I think are pretty cool. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a couple questions, but first of all, like, you said that you're not someone who has cried a lot. Why yep. did you choose this topic, or how did you get into uh, it? Uh, it seemed, well, uh, yeah, I, I have, it, we, People, uh, there's been a lot of tears shed. Uh, so when, when students are here, we meet once a week with them and talk about life or ideas or whatever. And in those contexts, I've been surprised at how often people have cried. And as someone who would like to cry more than they do, I have had some pretty significant cries in my life. I actually went to see my spiritual director today, hoping he would make me cry, <laughs> as he usually does. 
but he didn't. Uh, but in fact, actually, this book made me cry a ton. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I was just, and I was earlier in the year just reading, reading through the Psalms and struck by uh, some of those, some of the many, many images of, of crying. And it just, when you're a couple months out from having to give a lecture, you're like, oh yeah, sure, like let's, uh, <laughs> Let's try this, but um, yeah, I, I like. I'm working on my uh, emotional human intelligence, or um, and but yeah, I think it's it's a part of it's as I say, it's a part of being human, and um, I also go to a church that's pretty like, and I like our, my church quite a bit. I'm not knocking it. Uh, it's pretty like I'm trying to make up a word like uni emotional. It's happy. It's like always happy, and things are always good, and we always love God so much. And um, <laughs> I'm just often not in that same place. Not because I'm better, or pro- actually, it's probably because a lot of them are better. But, um, yeah, so it's just something I, I don't know. I, how, how do churches, how do Christians think about sort of more of the spectrum of our emotional life and especially aspects that, um, we tend to shy away from. And there's, so anyway, yeah, you had another thing or? Yeah, sorry, another question. Also, um, the forward that you love, KJ Ramsey. Yeah. I went to college with her. Oh, well, cool. Um, and her, her book is excellent. Yeah. Cool with just the thought too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess I have been on a journey of like understanding emotions, especially in the last year. And I and I also am not a person who cried a lot, although I cried a lot this year. Um, but it became apparent to me that all my tears and emotions in general had been suppressed because mm. of how I was raised and what was modeled for me and the way that was responded to when I was in distress. And so I think I found myself as not a crier, but now I'm like, oh, that's just because I wasn't allowed to or I wasn't mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I learned that it made me feel pitiful and alone, and so I like pushed all that away. And I guess my question related to that would be, I think that's a pretty common experience, especially mm, among Christians. Yeah. And like, how can we change that and, yeah yeah um, like you said like acknowledge tears and emotions as human as communicating I love everything that you said and I just I want to hear more of that in the yeah 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 um, I mean I've I've learned a lot about tears from my daughter uh, especially even just this week um, 
and she, um, I have a very high value on, like, being emotionally cool, like, stable, you know, like, easygoing, um, that I haven't always realized is something I really value. I'm not sure I'm right in valuing it. She does not carry that same value. Um, and I found that, like, I find myself sometimes, like, just not even, not paying attention, not being attentive to what she's worked up about, what she's upset about, what she's crying about. I'm just trying to get her to be cool. You know, like, just bring it down, be more like me, <laughs> like, and, yeah, I just, I find that, um, I was, like, shutting it, I was just shutting her down, and, um, even not, like, literally being like, hey, stop crying, get over the, you know, I wasn't that sort of person, but I, in subtler ways, was like that, and, yeah, I went through some harder this has been a long year for me in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah, especially earlier in the year, I found myself, like, could very easily cry. Um, kind of from, like, January to April, maybe May. And, um, yeah, I just found myself... I noticed during that time I responded to her differently. <laughs> I just was like... Yeah, this really is all, like, I'm, this stinks. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, like, and just let her cry. Um, and stop trying to get her to be like, have the one, I'm just rambling for what it's worth. I'm like, I'm just processing. But, um, so I, I just, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor and I'm not in charge of a congregation and there's good, there's probably very good reasons God has not given me that. Because I can't barely do it, like, in my home. But, like, trying to have my home be not just a... Like, I like, you know, I have a high value on being calm and cool and easygoing. But, like, the, like life just doesn't all... Like, that's a privileged place. And sometimes that means I, like, have suppressed or pushed down certain things that I don't... Either excitements or disappointments. Um... Not always, but sometimes, you know. And so, I don't know. I feel like I've been learning a lot from my daughter, who just has a very different. My son is a little more like, a little more like me, um, but not. I mean, he's twelve, so he's hasn't gone through puberty and all of that kind of. Well, he's start anyway. Um, uh, um, sorry, Jacob. Uh, uh, no, I, but I, I think, you know, like having, having the courage for, in regards to the church, like listening, well, one, listening to people like, um, KJ Ramsey. I don't know her work. I haven't read, I know of it. One of the books is over here. Um, I've only read her, the introduction. To be, to be honest, sometimes it's like, I mean, I've read from a lot of, of women this evening, and actually reading on tears read a lot, and I think uh, the church needs to not only listen to women, but women in leadership do bring a different perspective on a lot of things than men do, you know? And so I think that could be, like, one helpful thing. But, you know, the scriptures, you know, John Calvin, who has a terrible reputation, I love him, uh, he 
speaks about the Psalms as an anatomy of the soul. And he says basically every human emotion that you could feel, someone, whatever it is that makes up our soul, like it's here, it's in the Psalms, and it's a gift to us. And we have to let the psalmist take us to those places. Um, and um, I mean, I don't know if he lived that through himself. Like, I don't think he perfectly lived that out or whatever. But there, I think not... I think sitting with and teaching and preaching through the scriptures, you're going to be exposed to a lot of different emotions. And I don't know how we go through the life of Christ without, I mean, his, in many ways, his life, if it was an abject failure, you know, he died betrayed by his closest friends, uh, dying a shameful death and didn't really get much done in his lifetime. And like, that's, people can connect to that. Like that's, um, obviously there's more to say about Jesus' life than just that. but And Paul is someone who's constantly, constantly, you know, um, he's so emotional in how he writes, especially Galatians and Thessalonians. And in 2 Corinthians, he just talks about all of these, these pains that he carries. And so I think sometimes it's just like a, a like I... Many, I'm just, again, thinking out loud. I've been talking for a while. Um, and I'm happy to hear from others, but maybe there's a lot of churches and pastors who, look me, have just valued either, like, only positive emotions or have valued being, like, kind of easygoing and don't always know what to do with the negative things, which admittedly are super messy. But, yeah, Kathy, do you want to say something? Yeah, well, I can't help but remember. When I was a small child, five years old maybe, and my dog, Sissy, my dad ran over her in the driveway accidentally. And I was just staring down at my dog in this pool of blood. And of course, I began to weep. I'm sorry to now remembering. And I remember my mother coming out. Now, my dad wasn't Calvin yeah, 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 yeah. Minister. So maybe she felt that she had to play the pastor's wife. I don't know. Yeah. I love my mom. But at that moment, she really mm. failed me because she came out and said, all things work together for good. Yeah. Those who love the Lord. Yeah. And I remember distinctly looking at my mother and thinking, well, I don't want to have anything to do with your God. Mm. So in the, in the Oh, she's still talking. Hold on, one second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sorry, just one moment. Yeah, keep oh, going, no. Kathy. He's 
Oh, just sort of throwing out a, a Bible verse without acknowledging the um, the very human pain of losing something you you a, a, a you know a beloved pet. Did you sissy? Is that what the pet's name was? Well, yeah. I mean, if my dog if that had happened to one of my children, I would have been down there in the driveway crying with them. Yeah. You know, and saying this is horrible. This is horrible. You know, and my poor father felt awful. He had done it accidentally. Mm. You know, so I would be comforting him, Yeah, I, I get, uh, yeah, that he also, yeah, sometimes I read him and I find him very um, kind of like linear and rap, but then there's the, especially his, some of his his sermons, um, and he, there's a foreword, I forget to which book, that he talks about his own crisis of faith, and it's, yeah, it really, it, it, yeah, it clearly shaped a, um, uh, um, an empathy or a sympathy with people who are also going through crisis, and you know, were you going to say something, Sarah? Or? Uh, I was. I was just thinking about church contexts, and yeah, thinking like I don't know if it's a priority on being happy all the time as much as it's a priority on composure hmm. and um, not like nothing being out of control. So, like, whether that's extreme exuberance or weeping, yeah. there's an avoidance of those extremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the bigger problem. Yeah, Because I think yeah. in the church right now, yeah. there's a lot of exuberance, and I've seen more weeping mm. in in church services mm-hmm. in that church than I have mm-hmm. in a very long time. So, I think, you know, it's like when, you, when you're trying to damper down one, mm-hmm. you inevitably lose the range with yeah. the others, too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, and I, I don't think it's, you know, necessarily appropriate to have... <laughs> you don't need to take the whole congregation on an emotional roller coaster every week. But no, yeah, I yeah. think, um, you know, one of the gifts in the liturgical year is that there's, like, built-in seasons for... <laughs> Giving yeah. space to the full range of yeah, yeah. emotions and experience. Yeah, and I think what I meant, I, I meant mostly our worship music is mm-hmm. is very happy. I think, but what you said is right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't want to misrepresent. But did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to follow up on the, the, the church topic. I mean, 
I, as a young adult, went to a church that had Kleenexes in the front pews mm. for a reason. Because everybody would do an altar call and yeah, everybody yeah. would be crying. Yeah. And there was all there's always someone crying after the service. And so it's it's pretty ironic you call it theology of tears because most churches I've been to since would look down on that theology. Mm. And I wonder if they're tapping into just something else that we all need to kind of take the best of both Mm. (laughs) approaches. I mean, there is a... Emotions are important in our theology and our lived Mm. experience and maybe to our detriment in in more of the intellectual whatever traditions that we, we don't cry there's a you, we're lacking you know something yeah yeah no that's good you can say something we said yeah. yeah I was just thinking um, so I have gone to your church and I have cried in your church in the front um, more than once and never felt um, changed for that or, mm-hmm. or questioned or even wasn't like a, well, a bunch of people coming up afterwards but I was just thinking in my own mind um Maybe part of that is I have anonymity in my mm. church uh, because I don't think my church would either, but mm. I'm not sure I want my church to see it because mm. um, I'm known there and I mm. want everybody to know the pain. Yeah, and so yeah, sometimes yeah. we may blame the church. Yeah. It's not really the church. Yeah. It's us. Yeah. That's a real. Thank you. That's real. Just thinking and uh, I mean, tune with that. Of, is it? Do you think it's cultural? Is kind of, um, or what is our struggle? Because it seems like it's not necessarily tears. We like tears of joy and exuberance, and you watch people win the Super Bowl and they cry. But it's it's definitely tears of suffering mm-hmm. that we have such a hard time with. Mm-hmm. And do you think that might be cultural mm-hmm. as well? Because. From what I know, like the French and the Italians seem to give a lot more vet to their emotions. Hmm. And they seem to also have the, a lot of the arts and the, you know, um, more creativity, shall we say, in a lot of their, in, in their culture. Hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? I mean, I... I, I think it is, but yeah, I'd be happy. Dick and Sarah both have their hands up to that. Well, yeah. I, I just, I've confused myself in my own uh, experience because it, it connects with what crying has kind of mean in the culture. Something that really, really annoys me is listening to television or radio journalists interviewing someone who's just had a crisis of severe loss. Mm-hmm. They desperately want to get them crying on air. Mm-hmm. And they push for the most ghastly questions. I would mm-hmm. say, I would want to slap them all the way, or whatever. I'd want to shut the, the mic down. Uh, uh, because it's as if they said, finally, when they get the person crying, now, finally, I've, I've, I've done it. And then they, can, they empathize, mm-hmm. they change their tone of voice, and they connect. And so you have that connection with the person mm-hmm. who really suffering. I don't know if any of you have noticed that or remember the whole body, but, but it's it somehow that the whole world today is so organized and so edited and so 
set up in, in, in mm. orderly little cubby holes that it's as if we only uh, accept or believe we're dealing with authenticity when we have someone lose it uh, mm. by crying or when we have someone step out of line and not uh, perform in the orderly fashion that they're meant to perform. Uh, so it, it, there's, a, there's a way of trying to encourage crime, I think, in, in this, this kind of setting, mm. which, I, which I think is really ugly, which isn't, it's not what you're talking about at yeah. all. Yeah. Because you're talking about our freedom to be able to uh, express powerful emotions when they mm-hmm. can be expressed. But it's in a, in, a, in a highly artificial culture, an organized culture, uh, where everything is edited before it gets released, um, somehow um, getting somebody to cry is a prize. Hmm. Maybe, I'm, maybe that's just my cynicism. Has anyone experienced that? I was thinking as you were talking and like just hearing like yeah, other people's experiences that just like authenticity is not economical. So like in the church in particular, mm-hmm. like if you're not committed to being with your church family outside of the Sunday morning two hour block, you're not going to want to hear the struggles that they're going through because that means you have to follow up. Mm-hmm. And that requires your time and your effort, your energy, your emotions, involvement there. Um, and so I think at the church level, we fall prey to what culture also does with authenticity. It's like, this takes up our time, which time is money. Money, you know, means power, whatever your, like, you know, path you're going to go on there. But it just it takes up the value of our own lives and it's, mm-hmm. like, pushing us our centeredness. Mm-hmm. Um, even for our own selves, too. Where it's like, okay, if I'm going to prioritize, I don't know, like my career or something like that, I can't let my emotions come into my job because then my 40-hour work week is going to be affected. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's... Uh, maybe that's sometimes why people are um, apologizing when they cry in front of you because now they're realizing, like... They've opened up something. Yeah, and, you know, like, sometimes... <clears throat> yeah, in my mind, it's like, okay, we're going to do this for this long, and then on to the next thing. And I mean, I do not live in a success, high-pressure... You know, there's pressures, but, like... Or, like, highly driven, productive sort of culture. Here at Labrie, we're sort of a very different thing. But, yeah, there's times where... You know, I'm like, okay, there's like five minutes left. And then someone is starting to cry. And I'm like, okay, I guess there's not five minutes left. And what do I, what do, I do here? Like, do I... I mean, I feel this like probably with my daughter too sometimes or, or other people crying. I'm like, I, I want to go to bed. Like, I don't want... Um, I don't want this right now. Can you can you do this at six thirty tomorrow morning or whatever? Like whenever we get up, like I I'll be yeah 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 yeah. Like let me pencil you in later. Uh, so yeah, no, I think that's a really yeah. But I feel like both what you and Lisa said are sort of like uh, like it it is asking something of us, not just sort of a top down uh, sort of. It's not like just the church's fault. It's like we realize this is a big a big thing. Um, and I think too part of that also being like we lack patience with mystery. Yeah. Like someone's tears is, that's 
I've experienced myself and then like my own tears and then the tears with another person, the like pushed down emotions, they don't go away, you know, they're still there. And then I'm crying. I start to cry about something. So actually in preparation for this lecture, I rewatched certain movies that make me like things that make me cry. I tried to reread a book that made, made me cry. And I was like, nothing was doing it. <laughs> but, uh, like, but I have found myself. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, um, no, I have found myself watching something and being quite moved, uh, and then tearing up. And if I, so, um, yeah, finding myself then actually crying about something else. It's just like I've opened it up, and then all of a sudden, I'm I'm actually not really crying about this like beautiful scene at the end of Minari when David starts running. I hate to give away the end of. The, I mean, it's not much of a giving away the ending, but like, no, I'm actually crying about some really significant things that have happened to me that are I just haven't known what to do with. But this initial cry sort of let it in and I've, I've also with other people that you're talking about something and then they're crying <laughs> a small and then they're talking about something their tears are really not about what we were just talking about mm-hmm. but it a context or a moment was made where initial cry could happen and then it sort of opened up and those are yeah those are definitely like economically <laughs> tough moments but they're so so profound and so they're so important and sacred and um yeah anyway yeah anyway you're just just sort of responding to what you were saying but yeah yeah so with this idea of apologizing i'm sure there's a level of embarrassment people don't want to be seen or whatever but uh how how do you when someone apologizes for crying how how have you learned to like respond to that yeah, I I often just tell people they don't need to. There's nothing to be sorry for, um, and yeah, just or or they don't need to apologize. But I usually say I'm I'm sorry. Like if someone's crying about something painful that is like, and I I am usually I just like wish that shouldn't have happened. Uh, like it's not the way you should have been treated. That's not the you know or whatever whatever it is. But yeah, just so. But I don't know. Other people might have better response or have more experience and better responses. I don't think you can test crying. Mm. And people, I don't know if anybody else has noticed it, but nobody wants to talk anymore. And it, it's always testing. And, and then everybody, if you go out in the public square, what you see is a bunch of people walking across the street with your cell phone in front. And it's really controlling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What a great way to control the conversation. Mm-hmm. We'll just allow texting and only texting. Yeah. I'm not saying texting is horrible. You know, I mean, there it has. Like, no, I'm going to go on record. Kathy Dwiggins hates texting. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
texting is wrong. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, I you're I mean I yeah, I can for sure. I'm sorry, I like it. No, no, no. It's, it's all good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking about the reluctance to acknowledge crying or want to cry, and just going into what you're saying, that kind of the summary of crying is acknowledging that there's something wrong. And I feel, you know, all a lot of our lives we're just trying to go along and say, like, oh no, we have it under control, and like we have it all together. Mm-hmm. Or, and like if you're crying, or if you're going to listen to someone who's crying, you're kind of accepting that there's something wrong. There's something wrong in a situation. There's something wrong in the world. And it kind of, it just shatters that little illusion we like to pull around ourselves. Yeah. That we're in control and that the world's okay. And it's just, I don't, yeah, you don't want that illusion shattered. You don't want, you want your sense of control. You want your sense of, um, I mean, that, that for, I think maybe I also, I mean, there's just like so many things on crying. This book by Tom Lutz is really interesting. Uh, but he made, you made a point about like crying is modeled, you know, and um, if you don't have like a, cry, he doesn't say it this way, uh, but he talks about some of this sort of stuff. But like, yeah, crying can be like something that's like taught more than, or something that's caught more than it's taught. You know, and um, I find when my sense of control or my illusion of control of the world or that it's going to go a certain way is under attack, I get angry before uh, uh, before I would get to crying. But often, um, often the times I do cry, anger precedes it for <laughs> For, for quite a while, but I, I, yeah, and so I think some of that is how emotions were modeled to, or responding to difficulty, responding to things not being the way they are, and there are things to be angry at, there are things to cry for, and, um, but, yeah, anyway, sort of a stream of consciousness response, yeah. I think that the hard part is going, this person's going to a place of sorrow, which is a place I don't want to go all the time. Yeah. And compassion means to suffer with. Mm. And so to suffer with somebody costs me something. Mm. Yeah. 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 Something that just keeps coming to mind is the word courage and how whether that is receiving someone else's tears or bringing your tears into a space or into a conversation or relationship, 
it requires courage, and whether that's kind of the standard definition of courage is acting not in the absence of fear, but in the presence of it, and acting anyways. Okay. Um, there's that, because I think you've talked about a lot of reasons that people can be hesitant or fearful to bring emotions or crying into spaces. Um, but then I think Brene Brown talks about courage also being telling your story with your whole heart. And I think that that is something culturally we do not value. Um, kind of, yeah, just how courage does require all emotions. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I like that, Kate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah Thomas. So, one of the, I think you said it on the board, something like the three big cries in, in Scripture. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. What was that? I just chose, because the, there's so many of them, there's so many times about crying, I just chose, oh, actually I realize now I'm going towards it, I don't think there is a slide uh, that has all three. But um, no, I just was mentioning the, the a couple psalms, and then Jesus' particular tears over Jerusalem, and then Jesus wiping away the tears at the end. They're not like the... I don't necessarily think they're the... I mean, the last one maybe is real. Maybe Jesus' tears and the, and Jesus wiping away tears are some of the most significant in Scripture. Uh, but I just I just chose a... Oh, the, the Psalms, the ones I chose... I just said big cry. I thought it was sort of a cute way, because sometimes you have a big cry as opposed to a little cry. I don't know. I thought it would be slightly humorous. But I just chose these two psalms, Psalm 6 and Psalm 56, uh, which are both psalms of David. 56 is uh, a lament. There's like a series of lament psalms. And yeah, the beginning of the Psalter has quite a few laments, and I can't remember if Psalm 6 actually is, but it really looks like it. Um, But yeah, crying out in prayer both the presence of weeping so much of that he you know uh, Christ so much that he drenches his his couch but then this about um, God keeping our tears that somehow they're valuable to God he, he doesn't want them to just disappear he wants to keep them keep track of them um, yeah so but yeah there's a, lots of other significant tears and like really important tears I think in scripture and I just talked a long time about other stuff so I figured Psalm 66 56 56 56, 8 yeah 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 Esther I'm I'm still thinking a bit about like some people have mentioned about how do you respond you know when someone's crying um, what stuck out to me from that introduction that you read Which I understand, I totally understand the point, but actually, one of the ways that I usually do respond when someone starts crying is like, that's what I want people to do because I'm like a messy Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's only so much a sleep can handle. Yeah. But I do, I'm just wondering about like that. I feel like very often my instinct when someone is crying is I want to touch them. Uh, to let them know that I'm there. Like, I don't usually know what to say. Yeah. I don't need to say anything. But somehow to, like, make contact with, like, I'm here still. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if other people have experiences with that, but um, I I recently, there was this woman who I've never met. I, I 
no idea who she was in my church who it was like turn around and pass the peace and it was obvious she'd just been crying <laughs> um and so I like said hello to her or whatever and then I, ha- I happened to have a Kleenex box next to me because they are on our pews in our church um and so I was like would you need one of these um and I realized it could have sounded mm-hmm. like me being like oh this is awkward you're crying mm-hmm. like to make it stop but what I wanted to do what I wanted to communicate was like I see you like, yeah I see that. yeah um instead of like pretending like well I'm done I'm yeah I'm here you know and yeah. so it's, it's tricky, like, to know yeah. how, this isn't really a question, this is just, like, putting out. No, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, what, what does it communicate? Yeah. How can you, how can you communicate, like, from, I'm here? I think, like, you're saying, you know, you don't have to apologize. Like, is a way of just saying, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm here, I'm here for it. Like, you know. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's go to the, I've loved how you put that. Go to a place of sorrow, and I don't want to go there, but, like compassion of suffering with that was really profound and yeah i mean it's so funny because it's like yeah you could there's ways you could be you could say like i'm sorry that just sound like better be like stop you know or you could say i'm sorry in ways that are like yeah i'm here like so yeah i think the passing of the the kleenex can yeah be an invitation to keep like Keep going, or like a legit, like legitimizing, like uh, yeah. I think so. It's also like you can think about. Not only will I be invited into your sorrow and your suffering, but it might touch off what I've walled off to myself. Yeah. yeah. Of like watching this movie that then connects and opens another door. And yeah. If you don't open that door, I, I yeah. haven't gone there for years. And I actually, had a friend who said she hadn't cried for for like four or five years, and that was very concerning to me. Mm. <laughs> That, that doesn't sound good. So um, that might be part of going, I, I can't afford to open that door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the name of the person who did the slides again? Uh, uh, Fisher, Rose Lynn Fisher, and it's called The Topography of Tears. I just got it from the library and then... I think it's in a lot of libraries, interlibrary loans. And then um, it's online, too. Or the pictures are online. Yeah, Sarah? Um, just following on, thinking of ways of responding. Um, I remember during, during a season of postpartum depression and seeing a counselor through that, at one point I, I started weeping. And my counselor just said, there's strong emotion here. Mm-hmm. And it just, like, it has stayed mm-hmm. with me. Like, and it just opened up more. And it was a word of acknowledgement and a word of permission. Um, and it was a word that didn't in- interpret. Mm-hmm. It just, it just like, said this, this is what this is. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like that, I mean, I, I have since said that to people. Um, yeah. Who, cry with me because I think um, you know back to your point of like emotions communicate mm-hmm. something we don't always know what like mm-hmm. what is being communicated here and I think that's true with tears too like might not be crying because I'm sad I might be crying because I'm deeply angry and mm-hmm. I don't know how to express that any other way or yeah. I might be crying because there's that deep conviction about 
that's it. Yeah. Like, I just haven't gotten there verbally. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, words that just acknowledge there's powerful emotion here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, like, I was saying, I love that you said that there's powerful emotion here because I think part of the reason that um, I didn't want to cry for most of my life is because I felt like I shouldn't have powerful emotion. I think yeah. we, we do that to ourselves. We're like, it's a small thing. I shouldn't be this upset about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but giving ourselves the permission to, like, it's telling me that something matters. And it might be the thing behind the thing. It might not be, like, the small thing, but it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, like, letting ourselves acknowledge, like, okay, it's time to tell you something. Something that matters. Something that's wrong. Um, so instead of being, like, it's too small to cry over, mm-hmm. let me acknowledge that and search for what it is that matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So just going back to comments about learning how to cry and church and, and yeah, I think I just think it's it's been important for me to have people in my life. There are people in my life who have modeled crying well for me and as a good because I can I'm more of a I tend I've tended to be more of a I mean I mean peers or like uh, or, or people who I mentor, not just like my. Or people who are mentors to, or mentors to me, but like people that are older as well. Because, yeah, there's something about um, being in the presence of someone who who can go there and and does care enough about things that and will, will cry about things that are worth crying about. That for me is almost like like kind of like chest, checking my pul- my pulse. Like, am I alive to this? Am I connected to this? And um, yeah, I think that's been something I've I've valued in this this community here at Labrie, and um, yeah, not to like you were about to slip out, but I was going to say there's there's a guy who's actually one. Our, Michaela's not here right now because there's a guy getting married in Ohio who was a student here for a long time, and one time he was here, he left early, and basically left planning to, to not live. And I remember calling you, Dick, and speaking to you on the phone, and you cried. And then I was like, oh, I haven't cried about this. Like, I should cry about this. And then, yeah, it's amazing. You know, fast forward a, a decade, he's getting married tomorrow. He's doing really, he's a beautiful, wonderful human being. But, yeah, it's been a gift to me to be in a place that people can go to tears. Our colleague that used to be here, Dave Friedrich, was another man who would who could cry uh, well. And uh, Ben also can... Uh, sometimes It's like you don't see it coming with Ben, and then he just... And then he'll... Anyway, but I, I'm just sort of being openly thankful for some good criers that I've been around. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, Chris. Um, we must have been talking about kind of justification for crying, or yeah. the reason behind it. But do you have any books or advice on people who have just kind of been numb to crying and don't really know how to anymore? Because, like you said, you can't really just force an emotion. Yeah. How do you do? You think that's something that can be get can be taken back? 
Yeah, I, I think I think so. I mean, I I think part of it is then. I mean, not like a. Uh, nothing like a like five steps to crying or like <laughs> like a like. No, no but I I do think like like I sometimes don't. To me, crying is a very vulnerable thing, and loving something, investing care in something is a potentially vulnerable thing uh, because I could get hurt, um, and it could not work out. And so I think some of my stoicism or like emotional, um, like growing in emotional intelligence, has been becoming vulnerable. Uh, allowing myself to to care about things or to connect with places in my life that I have cared about that I've been really hurt by um, that I've like avoided. So it's I, it's not a I don't think it's a linear thing. I think it's it's something that comes um, for me. It's been helpful to have people to talk to about things or people that ask questions about about my life and over a series. Like over a over a long period of time, um, but yeah, I mean, I know it can also sound this might sound trite or um, you know kind of spiritual, but like yeah, actually asking God to give a, a gift of tears about like genuinely crying, like Jesus. You know, I didn't talk about a lot of this, but like um, you know. Um, uh, those who mourn are, are, are blessed um, because there's things worth mourning about. Like, and I, I, I don't want to. They will be comforted. And they will be comforted too. It strikes me that you know you use the example of an infant who no longer cries has given yeah. the hope of being comforted. Yeah. It's the infant who expects to be responded to. Yeah. That cries. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a long, um, like that, like, uh, I was, the, um, so the, like the group of fourth century Christians that fled, once Christianity became sort of the state religion, they fled to the desert and lived in caves and were pretty, um, did some strange stuff, but yeah, really, I think really are the roots of like, kind of, uh, of, um, like, sort of a psychological like turning a turning inward but it was a turning inward prayerfully initially like having having one how do we pray without ceasing we let god into these deep places within us and they spoke about um tears as a second baptism that as we um know ourselves and know god's goodness and these things come together we'll be driven to to tears and it's almost like an outward sort of sacramental thing for them either but it's quite it's to me it's quite powerful language that the desert fathers and mothers used um uh but yeah i don't know i'll just open it up if anyone else has any other thoughts yeah lisa um i think sometimes you don't cry i know i'm Um, and that was, she said, get paper and colors and um, 
just start having memories and using the colors. And she said, you can use stick figures. And so I just started paying attention when I felt my gut wrench because somebody said something. And then uh, the um, memory would come back that maybe was over 10 years old. Um, and I would put it there. And then, and then it was in sharing it with another person. I really was able to let the tears come. So, and I do think it's important for a stuffed-down grief to come up and come out. So I think it's right for you. You don't want that. The language that Tish uses in this this really excellent book, um, Prayer in the Night, is she says, uh, uh, "Buried grief still demands a hearing." Like, and so until the things that have would would drive us to tears that, but for whatever reason, for self protection or you know, sometimes there's it's not the exact. Sometimes it's not the right time to cry. You're just not. <laughs> you need to hold it together. But like. Inevitably, always pushing it down, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. And I, I think she uses the image of like it's like a, isn't it like a ghost that like stalks the land or something like that, or waiting to find rest or something? Like it doesn't go away. So, um, yeah. So I does anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah, Thomas. And Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn." Mm-hmm. Um, do you think he was? Uh, relating, suggesting what, I don't know what word to use, but uh, humility in that, the best of those who mourn. Say a little more, relating, yeah. At least to some extent to humility. Can you can you say a little more about, about the connection to humility? Just well, to, no, I'm just saying when just and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Mm-hmm. Do you think he was, uh, the mourn would relate to humility. Um, in, in some way, I mean, I think perhaps, but I, I do think it, it is about mourning, about um, living in a in a broken world and being uh, what is the how does the hymn put it? Uh, bruised and broken by the fall. There's lots of lots of reasons to adequately mourn. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't want to just put it. I'm not sure I totally follow the connection, but I I wouldn't want to... You don't think that that, that he's... Most of those who mourn that that... that, Not that that's an exact synonym, but but you think that that, that humility might be part of that mourning in that context? It, it It could be, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's sort yeah. of a, a, a radical humility that we're faced with in looking at mortality, I think. And so mm. I think there maybe is a, yeah. It, yeah, I don't know if etymologically humility does connect with humus, like the, the soil. Mm. It does. Yeah. But mm. yeah, I do. I do think one of the reasons for goes all the way back to Claire's comment um, like that we're afraid of encountering others' grief is because we're faced with we, we will grieve too. Like there's just mm. it's inevitable 
but everything mm-hmm. in our society is sort of, you know, mm-hmm. fortifying itself against that reality. And so, yeah. I Did she an- answer? My question, to some extent, I couldn't hear. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Do you want to just say it again? You said it, so well, but um. Thomas, I was just thinking that to mourn um, is connected with humility because it's a, a radical humility when we're faced with mortality. Like we're faced with the fact that we will die, others die. Yeah, life is lost. And so I think that 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 is a deeply humbling reality that we try to avoid. And there, there's a there's a, a long a long tradition from not long after the Desert Fathers, um, really until Martin Luther, to read that uh, that blessed are those who mourn is is only always directed at our sin. We see our sinful state. That's what we're mourning. And the reformers were like, oh, there's probably more to, yes, but there's also more. So I do think there's like, in that, that, that tradition of like, we're humble before God because we know our, our, our status as sinners <laughs> before God. And it, so there is a sadness that comes, uh, the idea of like compunction. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I think I see the perhaps the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone else have anything they want to say? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful moments in church have been for me. Just this is kind of more of a story. Just around people crying. I know I, I volunteer for a youth group, and the very first retreat I was on, we were kind of sharing about how we can, you know, it's that classic, like, how do you take what you learned from the retreat and take it home? With you? Mm. This kid just started crying, and it was a group of young middle school boys, and mm. he shared that his uh, cousin was battling cancer, young, like five-year-old cousin, and mm. he just started crying. I didn't know what to do. But this group of young boys just like came around him and like hugged him like it, it was like a hug, like a sports huddle, you know. And it was like mm. the most beautiful thing, you know. Um, mm. Another time, a worship leader was singing a song called "Lord, I Need You," and he just broke down on stage. Mm. Like how, how many times do we just have this worship leader on stage and they just have to be like a perfect musician? Mm-hmm. And he was here, was singing the song "Lord, I Need You," and he broke down and. He put his guitar down and walked off stage and the band mm. and would keep singing the song. I found out later that his girlfriend was diagnosed with ALS and he found mm. out that morning. So it's like those moments are just so powerful. So I'm, mm-hmm. um, it's, we, we think it's just such a blessing from God, you know, and it, mm. it helps bring perspective, it helps bring, you know, even if it's more from the sadness end of life. Yeah. I, I know I, I had a situation this year where I felt like I needed to cry and you know, I really can't force it. I even looked up online like how to, you know. Like one time I had to sneeze and I couldn't, so I looked mm-hmm. up like how to make myself sneeze. How do you? Like, do you remember? There was like little steps you could do to like make yourself like uh. one was like stick your head in the freezer or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not crying, it's not like that. And I think yeah. it's like, you know, like, 
Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have some. I mean, I have uh, not the exact same circumstances, but similar like experiences where crying actually when it is in a church setting or in a it, it does it it brings people together um, um, like unites us in our yeah our humanity and in our our creatureliness and yeah yeah well thank you all and uh, yeah.